This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by The Path, the coach-guided membership designed to help you make alcohol small and relevant in your life by removing your true desire to grab that next drink. Our science-based, compassion-led program allows you not only to shift your behavior and your relationship around alcohol, but more importantly, uncover and reprogram your subconscious conditioning and neural connections that have been keeping you stuck for years. With daily live breakthrough coaching, an intimate and supportive community, regular peer-to-peer connection calls, and a complete vault of resources, this is where your path to total freedom and effortless enjoyment of your new way of life begins. Join us at NakedMindPath.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast, and I'm here with Angel. Welcome. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Awesome. Thanks. So um, why don't you take us back to the beginning for you? Like where, where did your drinking journey start? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess to say I grew up, you know, I was born in the seventies. So kind of an eighties kid with the kind of classic parents who came home from work and poured a rum and Coke or a Caesar. Um, I think here in the U S you guys call them bloody Marys, but I'm from Canada. So we, you know, anyway, so this was the routine. So I very much kind of grew up with alcohol as part of life, right? You know, the liquor cabinet that was stocked all the time. And I had my first drink at around 13 and then just to kind of goof off. And it was kind of the naughty thing to do. And then 14, you know, some of my friends really got into drinking. And for me, I remember, remember like it was yesterday, they were all having fun and I would start like crying and I'd feel, you know, like the depressantness of alcohol really had an impact on me. So I remember wondering like, why is everyone having fun? And I would just be bursting into tears or just feeling really emotional. So at that age, I actually wasn't a big fan of drinking. And of course, at the time I didn't put the two and two together. But as a child, I had experienced sexual abuse. And so not really aware that this is kind of, it was almost like alcohol just sort of removed these filters and all this emotion I had sort of stuffed down was kind of coming up with the, it just wasn't a good combination for me, right? So actually for me in my teens, I gravitated more to substances and then food and then kind of relationships. So continued my path to sort of, try and control my feelings, all these feelings I didn't know how to deal with, right? Till eventually um, booze came back into the picture on the pathway to sort of like my rock, my own rock bottom, as you would say, right? Kind of in a relationship with someone who used drugs and alcohol, definitely was alcoholic. And then for me, it just got too bad. I started using harder and harder drugs until I just was just, you know, falling on my proverbial knees, so to speak. And that was when it kind of hit me. This isn't how I want to live my life. So my journey kind of became this path of, okay, I want to heal myself. And then I really connected that I knew I wanted to be a therapist. So it was like the journey was kind of onward and upward from there to kind of, you know, starting with lifestyle changes and you know, so reducing substance use, going back to school, going to the gym, eating the healthy food and all the stuff that, you know, to treat myself 
as if I was worthy and kind of worth it, right? And then it wasn't in graduate school, I um, kind of two pivotal ahas that have transformed my pathway. One was discovering emotion focused therapy. So I attended a training and sort of discovered that oh, these emotions that I've been trying to suppress and numb and get rid of my whole life are actually purposeful, like we're supposed to have these feelings, right? So that really steered me. And then the second piece was discovering mindfulness meditation. So it was a teacher who um, said, if you want to be a good therapist, mindfulness practice helps. So I'm like, sign me up. What's this all about? And then when I began to practice, it just clicked. It was like, oh, of mm. course, of course we need to be present with ourselves, right? Like, so those two pieces were huge for me. And then so much so that I researched mindfulness and that was actually the first time in my life that I realized this thing I'm drinking at the time. I mean, I wouldn't say I had problem drinking, but I became so attuned to this was against what I was trying to cultivate for myself. Right. So I actually became sober, just wanting to support my own spiritual practice at the time. And, and then met my husband or who became my husband, who was a drinker. And then I, you know, finished, went in to do my PhD got married and had three kids in five years. So needless to say, kind of my spiritual path was wow. a bit on the back burner, right? So alcohol started to slowly, Annie, kind of creep back in, in this very interesting way. So I, you know, was teaching meditation. I had my own clients, my own therapy, being a mom, everything was fine, it seemed. And then I started to notice these. So I had three kids, so three maternity leaves. And I started to notice that, you know, I would look forward to this glass of wine as because I was kind of so sick of the mundaneness of the groundhog day of the babies and the diapers and the cooking. And so it started to be like, I'll have a glass of wine while I cook dinner. And then suddenly making dinner for the umpteenth time isn't quite so bad. It was like this little reward in this treat kind of almost, I think it was replacing the self-care that I kind of didn't have time for, right? And, and then the wine became, you know, I started to pay attention to how um, I would want to sit and have a glass of wine with my husband, and then we'd be interrupted. And then I realized, and I'd had this frustration. So when I kind of cued into this frustration, that was I was really associating the wine with connecting with my husband and I was kind of being robbed of that. So it was like creating this frustration in me, but then I ignored it. So these were just these little ahas, right? That I more recently kind of started to notice. And so I'd say for the last decade, this relationship with alcohol was, it would come and go. Like there was this, I'm a mindfulness teacher. I'm a therapist. I need to be this put together person but very much was, you know, caught up in this wine culture of moms. And, you know, my mother-in-law, she's a big wine drinker. So we'd make jokes about it, you know, um, all that whole thing that we see, right? The, um, the jokes about moms and their wine. And I was all, it was totally, I wasn't questioning it at all, really at the time. And then I would get these little whispers. So, like, for instance, when I, I would read an article about Brene Brown's blog and her being sober, and I had this twinge of like, I was irritated by it, 
And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? Why does that irritate me? Interesting. <laughs> you know? But you and wouldn't then, have even asked if it wasn't for the mindfulness practice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it was cueing things that it's like the, the, the whisper was still there where I wasn't fully at peace, right? I wasn't, I was drinking here and there, but it started to take up energy where, you know, and of course we investigate, like in my teacher certification program, we, um, we were invited to, you know, examine your relationship with substances, right? And, and I remember thinking, yeah, do I have to quit? Do I not have to? Like, what am I supposed to do here? And what would that look like? And it was creating this, I don't want to say frustration, but I, I was unsettled and I wasn't sure. And so I would tell myself, oh, as long as I just have a little bit, right? And so like Eckhart Tolle, you know, says, if the body wants a glass of wine, that's fine, but listen to the body. So when the body says like, that's your limit, you know? So I was like, okay, I'll do that. Like, but it just, it just created so much psychic stress for me. I mean, like, like, because I wouldn't just stick with that one glass. I'd have a little bit more and I'd start to notice my body not feel well. Like, I'm a pretty small person and it wouldn't take a lot for me to get headaches or to start to notice kind of in the morning, like I'd be feeling not so great. And all of these little signs, I guess we could call them signs, but these little awarenesses of, but I would ignore it, right? So I'd notice it. And then I would just be like, then I'd have the thought that, well, I just, how would that work? Because my husband and I, we like to drink wine, like this thought, you know, that it would be so inconvenienced to go sober again. So I just have to manage it and stay responsible with it. So this went on, you know, this is how it was on and on and was actually introduced, met you and learned about the naked mind was one of those moments where uh, I was watching it out of interest as a writer. So, because in the process of working on writing and um, you were being interviewed and, and so here you are, this book, this naked mind. And again, I got this like irritable kind of like feeling like, you know, when we have envy, right, or jealousy, it's because it's tapping us into something that's important yeah. that we need to look at. So anyways, so, but I ignored it. And then comes, you know, the pandemic and COVID um, in March. And I have three children and being a stay-at-home teacher is not something I would have ever signed myself up for, needless to say. And just found myself like, coping by telling myself throughout the day when I had so many difficult, challenging moments with my kids, trying to make them do things that they don't want to do. Um, it's okay. Like wine o'clock is coming kind of thing. I started to notice myself like, okay, I'll cope with this difficulty now by just once 4 PM, once the, the day is done, I'll just sit and have a glass of wine. And so sure enough, this was the first two weeks and I found myself drinking to the point of feeling really ill. So getting hungover enough that my body was just like, this feels horrible. And it was really the kind of third time. And, and I woke up in the morning and I did the math. I was like, okay, Angel, that's three sort of hangovers in a two week period. Like you can't ignore this anymore. And I just felt so, I guess, shame. I guess it was shame. But it was, I want to differentiate, Annie, the, the different kind of shame, because I think shame, we can feel different kinds of shame, right? But this yeah. wasn't, this wasn't me kind of falling down a rabbit hole of just, you know, self-hatred or kind of hating myself type shame. But it was a shame where I was like, this is like, you're an imposter. 
it was like saying, okay, Angel, like here you are writing a book because you want to help people kind of through their emotions. And this is your life's mission, but you're not handling yours so great right now. Kind of, you know, shame, like, ugh, like a kick to the gut kind of feeling. And it was, and then the physical pain on top of it, it was just one of those moments, right? You can imagine. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was done. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what was that book's name again? You know, pulled it up, um, read it that weekend, which, you know, I clearly made the decision at that point, I need to get, you know, rid myself of this enough of this, you know, contemplation, let's just do this. And your book, was so pivotal because it gave me a, a real aha that I'll share with you that I'm sure many people resonate with, Annie. And it was the explaining the impact of the alcohol itself, because here I was thinking, I need this, or this is helping me cope with how angry and irritable I am all the time. Mm -hmm. And little did I realize after just a few short days of not drinking anymore at all, that I wasn't getting as angry that I wasn't getting as irritable, you know? And, and it was just like, I'd been caught in this total spider web of, you know, what we get dished out and what we don't know um, about the impacts of it. So the science of it was fascinating to me and it just really supported everything that I had kind of already known. But that, for me, that was the new piece that was just enough to, to take me all the way through. Yeah. So I don't know if that's short oh, or long, but there it is in a, <laughs> in a breath. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, it sounds like, especially because of your work as a therapist and mindfulness teacher and practitioner, that there was, would you say there was like sort of an added level of cognitive dissonance in your journey? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how it is for others. So it's hard to, for me to kind of put myself in another's um, thoughts because, you know, my role as a therapist, my role as a teacher is me. Like there, I'm just, I am one, whether I'm working with clients or students or just my own path. Um, but pro chances are like, I'm always just kind of, if I'm out of alignment, I'm just so aware when I am. Now, I, don't, I may or may not do something about it, right? As I've explained, right? Sometimes I can, just like everybody, kind of not pay attention enough or not take action. But I'll, I, I would say I'm pretty attuned at noticing all these things, but we still get to notice and still look away and, and ignore, right? Until we can't anymore or until the, the message gets louder and louder and louder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And I think that sometimes we are, more attuned to it when we're looking at other areas of our lives, but it's always there. And I just think you can, yeah. you know, it's, it's harder to see the inconsistencies when you're not sort of exploring all of this other healing work, which it seems that you're doing, which is so yeah. cool. Yeah. So how have the people in your life reacted? Mm. Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, we're COVID, so we don't have a whole lot of contact with people, I will say, right? Um, I remember being a bit nervous to tell my husband because just because that wine drinking thing was this thing that we did and he loves red wine. So I was kind of worried, is he going to, you know, is he going to be bummed out? And um, and when I brought it up to him, he wasn't at all. He was like, I'm proud of you. That's fantastic. And so, you know, I just... It's so funny, right? The way our mind can create these fear stories that 
don't actually end up being reality at all. So that was the case with my husband. And Mm. to be honest, other than kind of my own immediate family, which I don't see. So we moved to the US. And so all of our families up in Canada. And other than that, I haven't really shared with a whole lot of people. I mean, I, my kids, I didn't come out and say, mommy's not drink, you know, I didn't want to bring attention to it, that it was this big deal. And they just kind of eventually noticed that, oh, okay, so mom's not drinking wine with dad, like it wasn't even a thing. Um, Interestingly, so with my in-law side of the family, which are, I mean, you'd call them drinkers, they're all generally drinkers, right? So we did this Christmas party Zoom call. And I mean, that's not a situation I'm going to advertise. Hey, everybody, since you've known me, I'm not, you know, drinking. But there was this one point where one family member asked, like, what's everyone drinking? Like, it was this thing, right? And so I was very aware of it. I was like, just meant making a mental note of it. Isn't that interesting, right? And kind of have feelings about it, too, that come up. Because, you know, to me, I and kind of your work here that you're doing here. I mean, I think when we do this work and we deeply look at our relationships with alcohol, there's a lot of feelings that come up. Like to me, it's very sad. You know, there's a sadness that um, people aren't necessarily aware of all the impacts and kind of the commonplaceness of alcohol. Um, I don't know if you noticed that Super Bowl commercial that was, connecting beer with like moments of sharing and moments of connecting with people, you know? So yeah, that stuff is just kind of upsetting. But anyway, I went, I I derailed a little bit to your question, but uh, because there's really not a whole lot to share (laughs) with COVID. We don't see anyone, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of nice and kind of like, okay, well, we'll just have to navigate that when that happens. Um, but yeah, there was so many Super Bowl commercials that you're like, where is this one going? Is yeah. this going to be an alcohol commercial? <laughs> because it's just amazing um, yeah. how in order to sell alcohol, they really have to equate it to all of these yeah. very natural, um, very deep human longings, like connection and yeah. Yeah. joy and all this stuff that it's actually not really correlated with at all but yeah yeah. (laughs) that's how how it has to go right that leads people to believe it's essential right which is how it just gets so infused yeah yeah it's amazing Mm -hmm. but it is certainly I think changing slightly I mean people have never been more interested in kind of a low pressure conversation around it. I think one of the biggest issues is that the conversations have been so black and white, so high pressure, so all or nothing. And while that, you know, it's right for a lot of people, it's not the best entry point into the conversation. And so I think it's great to see that changing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, now I'm, I'm remembering, I did tell this couple, um, that came out the one social event we had when we had people over in the summer and he and the and the husband was really intrigued it was interesting right how and I've heard some of this on people talk about this on your podcast that as we can begin to be more open and also not being black and white but just not making it a big deal right the people that are also kind of wondering are also having certain ambivalent feelings or curious feelings um then they feel more, they, I think, feel more open 
to maybe reach out or start those conversations too, right? So that was my, I did notice that and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's yeah. so interesting. And it is, it does become this ripple effect where I think the more low key we are in some ways, the more people are curious, which is mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool. So is there any um, other aspects that you wanted to, to add or, or talk through in, in terms of your own story? Um, well, um, I think, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I would mention, it actually comes uh, from a quote that you included in a newsletter that you sent out that I came through yesterday, which was there's a full spectrum of colors and we're meant to feel them all. I thought that was mm -hmm. really a beautiful way of saying that. And, and so now I'm kind of, I'm kind of reinforced. So my, my this year experience of kind of coming clearer with my relationship with alcohol and, you know, once and for all going sober and it's really deepened my practice and deepened my passion to help others with the emotional components, right? It's like, sometimes we need to be re-reminded. And for me, it was a very personal re-reminding about why this matters so much to me um, and why I care so much because I think for so many um, people, part of why they're struggling with alcohol is not knowing how to deal with all these feelings that pop up for them. Um, you know, it's this commonplace, very socially approved way to numb, whether it's anxiety, because you're a little socially nervous, you know, I mean, I've heard that a lot in the work that I do. Um, I used to work with college students back in the day. So I mean, that was so clear. And just, you know, people that want to change their relationship with alcohol, but it's run into some challenges. And so that whether it's the challenges, they find themselves with all these emotions and feelings that bubble up and they don't really know what to do with them. So that's kind of the, my work that I do to help people around mindfulness of emotion and self-compassion, which is what I would say, Annie, is one of the things that I so appreciate about the work that you're doing and makes you really stand out, which is in the spaces around addiction in particular, I mean, elsewhere too, but it, where we really need compassion, you're kind of standing out there, you and maybe Gabar Mate, you know, uh, saying we need compassion, right? We need it. And it's, I believe it's both through my own experience and working with others, it's essential if we're going to help mm -hmm. ourselves. It, we have to heal. We have to have self-love and um, in order to do the work to, that sustains the change, right, is mm -hmm. we kind of have to dig into the pain of it and do it in a way that says it's not your fault. Like this isn't, mm -hmm. you know, bash yourself on the head to, to feel badly here, but look at the pain so that you can change it, right? Yeah, I, that's where I, I feel mindfulness has helped me, Um and actually supported by the, the research being done right now on mindfulness and addiction is that um, the invitation is to pay attention to the costs, pay attention to where, I mean, I'm thinking the study with, with smoking, but the same would be true of alcohol. And certainly that's what helped me is I couldn't deny anymore. I stopped denying the negative impacts of what drinking was doing. And that really helped me reinforce because then we remember, you know, we don't actually want to suffer, right? Part of why I think sometimes we run to the beverages 
if it's to cover up some uncomfortable, unpleasant feelings, it's because we're trying to avoid the unpleasantness, right? So yeah. if we can take that same way that we are just sort of hardwired, but pay attention to where it sucks, you know, we, we tend to not want to do that. But if we do that with compassion, and this is where those two are so infused, right? Um, so it's not like I'm going to judge myself and berate myself, but I'm going to hold myself in compassion, but really look at this. What are the impacts? What's the physical impact? What's the emotional? Where is this really not serving me in my life and in my path, right? So that when the cravings come up, you know, as they did a couple of times, not often, but when the craving or the thought like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a glass of red wine? The, the shadow right away is, oh, but remember how bad that felt. And I can remember, and it's like a visceral remembering. It's just like, and then I can draw on that. And that just kind of reinforces in a very helpful way to kind of move past the craving, right? Because anyway, so that's my, I would add that. <laughs> I love all of yeah. that. That's okay. all just so true. And it's so important for everybody to hear because we think illogically, but it is just what's drilled into us that if we just punish ourselves or beat ourselves up or make ourselves see how bad it is and how, how things have gotten so bad, like let's just dwell in it, then somehow we're going to give ourselves some motivation to change. Yeah. And it just is not true. And yeah. what actually the science is now showing very clearly is that self-compassion is the way to change. And I think that the way to awaken self-compassion is by understanding why you're doing what you're doing in your in the first place. Like you said, it's not your fault. Like once you start to see that the brain is actually doing exactly what it was created to do in order to ensure your survival, it just never was created to have the sort of substances and the things that we're exposed to these days at the levels we're exposed to them. Then you're like, oh, okay, this isn't because I'm some, you know, awful human mm -hmm. and you can start to awaken that self-compassion. I think that is the starting place for the change, which is so good. Absolutely. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. That's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you um, the, the question I kind of always end these with, which is if you were going to go back in time and talk to yourself of, you know, kind of, I guess the two phases in, in your mm -hmm. life, which was kind of the pre-kids and the mommy wine culture, mm -hmm. um, what, what would you tell her? Um, probably just pay it, keep paying attention, right? You know, um, whether it's intuition or whether it's signs or whatever we call it. I mean, I'm so grateful that I did, that I value the inner whisper. Um, I think that's let, helped me and guided me to be in an, an amazing place and doing what I love and having this great family is because I've always listened to, well, not always, but I was always aware of the whisper, but when I listened to it is when, um, when I would make the choices that were kind of getting me back on my path. Um, so pay attention and and just love, practice love. I mean, it's difficult and that sounds kind of hokey. And I know because I teach compassion, it's difficult for many people to let that compassion in. So I just say, I'm just going to even say that because I don't want people, if they try and take that on, it's like, oh, hey, just love yourself, right? Right. But 
even just note that. So even just for people to understand that there is the research shows there's this backlash to bringing compassion to ourselves. And that's also our social conditioning. You know, we're, we've kind of come from this ancestral idea that it's maybe, you know, the jokes of on SNL back in the 90s, you know, on the self-help movement, like they make fun of, I forget that guy, Stuart Smiley or whatever that character's name was, you know, he'd stare in the mirror and be like, I love myself. And so we would laugh at that. But I think that has gotten us away, you know, or people think it's too cheesy or it's too hokey, but the reality is it's healing. You know, mm. so get past the awkwardness, get past the hokiness of it and start to turn your, the same care and love you give to the people that you love and start directing it towards yourself. And yeah, that I, might be by, you know, eating a healthy meal and it might be by doing some meditation. It might be by just talking to yourself and being kind instead of critical, whatever that looks like for you. Um, that's to me, the biggest, best advice I'd give myself and anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd add into that to get past that resistance and awkwardness. Yeah. Um, I would really question yourself and be like, dig in and, and ask, why am I judging this so harshly? Like, what am I afraid of? What is this triggering for me that if I was to embark in kind of this journey of self-compassion and self-love, like, what is it that awakens in me this very harsh judgment of that? Yeah. Um, and, like, where and try did to find I learn fear it? there. Yeah. yeah. Where did I learn it? And what yeah. am I afraid of? Because I think yeah. there is a fear. And I think the piggyback question to that becomes, what is it about the guilt and blame and beating myself up that's serving me? Because there is uh, very much a reason that we do it. There's certainly the societal reasons, mm -hmm. but there's also very tangible reasons, which it makes us feel in control in the moment. You know, it makes us feel better in the moment to beat ourselves up because we're like, oh, we're doing something about it. It feels like action. It feels like we're taking some steps towards changing through the action of beating ourselves up or like, you know, we deserve it or we're writing the scales or there's some sort of equity in it. And so we put all this focus and attention on it without seeing that, although it maybe scratches the short-term itch to make a change or to, you know, write the scales because we've feel we deserve it. It doesn't actually go where we want to yeah. go, which is to actually change things. And it feels very counterintuitive to let ourselves off the hook and to say, no, it's all okay, because we don't believe that will actually change things. And so I think it's, you know, really getting under the skin of what is, why are you holding on to that beating yourself up? And yeah, and I think that that's, you know, a lot of creating positive emotion around this self-compassion is really understanding what the negative emotion that's keeping you from that is, because the truth is, we are born with self-compassion. Like we are born with very, I believe, divine love for ourselves. You can just see it in any little kid. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then that gets kind of changed over time, but it isn't as much that we need to go at this from like, I need to try on something new. It's, it's much more often that we need to unlearn the things that are keeping us from this flow of love that already exists between us and us, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most common fears is I definitely heard this when I worked with college students. Like if I'm not 
hard on myself. I mean, they think they're going to just end up on the couch, binge watching Netflix, like, and just become loafs and do absolutely nothing. But having care for ourselves doesn't have that impact at all because it, I mean, we want to be productive. We want to be on our path. We want to be doing things. And um, I mean, if you just imagine, right, like, what does it feel like to be, what's it actually feel like when you're on the receiving end of some, you know, massive critical diatribe towards yourself? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's diminishing. It doesn't mm -hmm. actually motivate, but you're right. It's one of the grand illusions of our day, I think, that people, you know, are unlearning. Absolutely. And that's where the freedom will come. Let's hope. Yes. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. Well, this has been awesome. What a pleasure. And thank you so much for coming to share your story and being here with me. Well, great. thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hi, it's Annie Grace. I wanted to interrupt this podcast. I guess the end of this podcast to say that if you're totally serious about actually and truly and forevermore transforming a relationship with alcohol, really leaving it behind in the rear view mirror for once and forever and changing your psychology about it, we have a program called The Path that I've created specifically for you. Now, it's not for you if you're still dabbling or trying to figure out where you want to be or maybe even if you still want to moderate. All those things are fine. That's great. But if you're beyond that and you're like, no, I just want to be done with this. I'm ready to invest some time. And I'm ready to just make this happen. I want the answer. I want the easy way out. Then I want you to check out NakedMindPath.com and join us in the path where you receive coach-guided and community support so that you can truly make this lasting change that you want in your life. And as always, Rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.